Mark, thank you very much for your helpful, brief introduction to this big, difficult, sometimes complex topic. You, I think you gave us sort of the definitional, this is what it is, and then you gave us preparation. How do, how do we start moving toward that? And throughout, you threw some apologetic, kind of persuade, how do we persuade? Let's, let's start with that, that last bit, in fact. Uh, brothers, how do you respond when the member or the would-be member comes along and says, hey, look, I know my Bible. I know Matthew 7. I know what Jesus says. First of all, he says, judge not, that you not be judged, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And you know what he also says? He says, how can you take the speck out of your brother's eye unless there's a log in your own eye? So sort of right there, front end, somebody's coming in, you're trying to persuade, you're trying to help the church respond. How do you, how do you respond to the whole judge not and you're a sinner to response among members? Thabiti, you're nodding your head like you really understand this. I just thought it was a good question. Yeah. How, how would you? Why don't you start us off? Uh, I, I, I think you praise that brother for opening his Bible and looking in the Bible and endeavoring to honor and live by the scripture. And uh, you say, let's add some things to that. Um, and um, you, you try to convince them, prevail upon them that the Lord is not double-minded. He's not schizophrenic. So the other passages of scripture aren't in contradiction to that. So he must mean something different when he says, judge not. Uh, when we look at the other passages where in fact he does turn the church into a kind of court um, to adjudicate these cases. And, um, and maybe you land on judge righteous judgment, you know, um, and you land on those texts that make it really clear, as Mark made it really clear, that this is how you love people who are entangled in their sins and perhaps unable to see, um, that, that in Matthew's gospel he's given us these keys. He's given us this responsibility as a way of loving people finally when they may be resisting all other forms of love. Um, and so. Thank you. Other brothers? I, I, would, I would say, one, uh, very often people that say that in this context are, are trying to find a way to keep you from doing what the Bible is asking you to do. So they're, they're warning you off their case, and they're quoting a passage that they think will help keep you off their case. And so it'd be easy to just dismiss that as irrelevant to church discipline. In fact, it is relevant. I think what Jesus is going after is censoriousness. He's, he's going after a spirit that just loves to find fault with others and which is blind to one's own errors. And that's a, that's a really good thing to remember when you are faithfully doing what he does tell you to do in church discipline, that you, you, you aren't do, you, you're not, first of all, you're not judging by your own standards. You're judging by Jesus's standards. So this is not you imposing yourself on another person, or this is not the elders of the church or the church collectively imposing its own standards upon a member. It's Jesus's standards that are being uh, appointed. Now, with regard to Jesus' own statement, Jesus is going to say just a few chapters later that we're to take certain things to the church. So he can't mean that you can't do that when he says, judge not. So, so Jesus himself, as the BD's already pointed out, calls for you to, to be discerning, 
and to judge rightly. So how do you handle it when he says, don't judge? Well, Jesus very often will use what John Murray calls a relative contrast in absolute terms. Jesus, it was a teaching device that he used regularly. So for instance, he'll say, swear by nothing at all. So he'll, he'll apparently rule out any kind of oath whatsoever. And then he himself will swear an oath. Um, it, for instance, in the context of the last uh, Passover in the first Lord's Supper, he says, I will never eat this meal again until the kingdom of heaven comes. It, it's an oath that he's taking. So wait, wait a minute, Jesus, you said don't swear and now you're swearing an oath. Well, if you, if you look at what he's doing, he's using absolute terminology to condemn an abuse of a particular practice not to condemn it outright. So Jesus never calls on us to be undiscerning, and he never calls on us to fail to judge justly. He wants us to judge justly, but he doesn't want us to impose our own standards, and he doesn't want us to do it with a censorious spirit, which is clearly entailed in that passage. So either Jesus is forgetting what he just said. In Matthew 18, he's forgetting what he just said back in Matthew 7. Or there's another explanation. Jonathan, also, I would just simply say to such a person, uh, read the next uh, two verses, uh, or verse 6, rather. Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Jesus obviously is making some type of value judgment when he describes persons as dogs and pigs. That seems to be... uh, judgmental kind of statement Mm -hmm. but it's right after the first five verses of chapter seven and one of the things that's helped me in this area is i do think and it can be overstated but i do think there's a distinction between questioning people's motives and questioning people's actions i don't know what motivates you to do what you do I, i don't know your heart i don't even know my own heart but i do know visible actions that take place that are public, uh, that are ongoing, uh, that are of a very serious nature, which is what you hear being developed later in the issue of church discipline. To to say it in Jesus' metaphorical way, I can identify a dog and I can identify a pig by what they're doing, by how they're living. Those are external criteria that I have the ability to observe. And again, coming to what will come later, my, my loving response is not to say, well, yeah, that's a dog, that's a pig, and, and I turn and walk away, uh, because again, he's using a very powerful image here. These are people that I've entered into relationship with. Uh, one of the things that Mark kept saying, I, I really want us to talk about a little bit, Christian life is, is deeply personal, but it's not private. And when he said that, it immediately popped in my mind, well, of course, because we are family. And when you are family, yeah, there's private uh, personal aspects to family life, but there's nothing private in terms of a wife keeping something from her husband or a husband from his wife or parents from their children. No, we, we have a personal kind of relationship, but this uh, hyper-privatization is foreign to family life, and therefore it should be foreign to church family life too. So and, I, I'm and Just a few sorry. verses later there in Matthew 7, verse 15, watch out for false prophets they come to you in sheep's clothing. I mean, he even, he just couldn't make it any clearer. You know, they, you've got something that looks like a sheep and something that looks like a sheep. And one of them's a sheep. 
and worms a wolf in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. By their fruit, you will recognize them. It's not judging to recognize a wolf that's Halloweening as a sheep. So you agree with Danny, there is a time to call church members wolves, sheep, pigs. You're a pig, you're a sheep, you're a wolf. There are time to call people out. No, I wouldn't use those names. <laughs> yeah. That wouldn't be pastorally prudent. It'd be like some things I've done as a pastor, but I wouldn't recommend <laughs> right. it. Right. It, it also occurs to me that Paul even uses the word judgment and judging in, in, in 1 Corinthians 5, verse 12. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? Very un-American word, right? But there, there's, apparently he means something different than what Jesus is instructing in, in, in Matthew 7. How do you, you guys have all used this phrase, loving. Uh, Danny, you called it a ministry of corrective love. Mark, you said it's part of love. How do you teach your churches that this is actually a loving thing? Garrett, you're, you've been in your church, what, four or five years now? Three. Three. Yeah. How, how have you gone about instructing this is actually a loving thing to do? Well, I, I think even with this person that, that brings this verse to you, I think we do want to reason uh, from the Scriptures with them, but I also want to just figure out what's going on in their heart. I would, I would, I would want to ask them, what, what is it about this idea of us being in each other's lives that scares you? Like what, have you been hurt by, by a church before? Have you seen a church do things poorly before? Have you seen it, anything in me as a pastor uh, that makes you not want to trust me or some of the other pastors here? And I think that's, that's part of what love is. Christ enters into where we are, and he, he, you know, he doesn't say, hey, get cleaned up and come to me, but he enters in. And I think as much as we can model that kind of Christ-like pastoring, discerning where each person is, I think that is going to model love for those people. And I think they'll sense that, and that, that will open up and disarm, uh, I, I think, in, in a way that, that gets, gets truth in there. So you're modeling it. What else? How do we teach that this is loving? Brothers? Well, I think you look at the scriptures where you have, uh, for example, Jesus uh, confronting Peter, uh, get behind me, Satan. You have uh, a mind for the things not of God, but of this world and of the evil one. And uh, clearly he was doing that because he loved Peter. He just praised Peter to the high heavens, and now he's having to rebuke the one that he just praised and in some sense is given authority to. And uh, therefore, it's clear to me that sometimes the loving thing is to do what our Lord did with those that he was closest to, loved most dearly, had poured his life into for three years. And so Jesus himself, I think, sets the good pattern for us. The Apostle Paul. Uh, with what he does with Peter and Barnabas in Galatia. I mean, he is hot, and uh, he gets in their business, and he gets in their business publicly because they have publicly, uh, consistently, and very seriously compromised the gospel with their refusal to eat with the Gentiles, with the, with the uh, nations. And so you see those patterns in Scripture as well, but then again, you can also turn it around and look at how Paul travailed he wept bitterly and grieved over the status of the churches because of his great pastoral heart for them. So I think modeling it over time, uh, Jonathan, is certainly crucial. And then showing them in the scriptures where uh, our, our Lord, the apostles, and others exercise this act of loving confrontation for the good of that person as well as the health. In the Galatian situation, my goodness, it was the health of the whole body there. They, they, they were on the verge of losing the gospel. 
Yeah. This is certainly not what Americans today or Westerners think is loving. We, we have wrong ideas about love, don't we? Here's what the gospel does. The gospel confronts us and shows us that we, we're all wrong, you know, because God is the Holy One who is right. And that's, this is the foundation of the gospel. This is why preaching the gospel and applying the gospel in all things is so essential day in and day out, regularly reminding that we need this correction from God. So I think the gospel has got to be everything that we do. has got to be filtered through that lens. As discipline has disappeared in families, so also it's disappeared in the church. And in the church, it's run a little bit ahead of the disappearance of it in the families. But we're seeing that in Western culture, where not only do you have certain types of discipline being outlawed and disapproved by society, you even have in some cultures, like in Sweden, the very idea that parents have the right to discipline their children in any way, even uh, non-corporeal ways, uh, that they don't have the right to do that over their children. So there is a parallel of what's going on in the family and in the church. But in the context of a loving family, it is very apparent that discipline is an expression of love. Um, Today, we're very, very aware of um, the highly charged cases of the abuse of discipline in the home, and we don't countenance that in any way, but that abuse of discipline does not negate the right use of discipline in a healthy family. So my, I never, ever doubted my parents' love for me because they disciplined me. In fact, I always knew that their discipline of me was an expression of their love for me. And, you know, when, when a mother says to a son, son, I beg you not to do that. If you take that next step, you have no idea what that will mean for your life. That is not an expression of hate. Uh, it's that, that's not an expression of control. That's an expression of love. That is a woman loves her son, and she doesn't want him to destroy his life. And in, in the church, if we're a family, and Danny, you're right, and we are, that's one of the pictures of the church in the Bible, uh, then we're going to love one another in that way. It's not always just going to be the elders and the church in a formal setting. A lot of time it's going to be very, very informal when people that are involved in one another's lives say, brother, I, you know, I've, 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 seen you, I've seen you going a direction that concerns me. I love you. What's going on? That, that's actually the way it ought to happen. It ought not always go immediately to the formal level. It's all of us just involved in one another's lives as a family. Uh, I loved what you said, that the the church in one sense is sort of an assurance cooperative, where we make sure that we're not self-deceived, because we easily deceive ourselves. And I need brothers and sisters that are coming alongside of me and opening my eyes to things that I've let my own eyes cloud over about. So uh, that it's all an expression of love. Ligon, do you think it's going to be harder for this group to shepherd towards discipline, to shepherd their churches towards it? You're saying, hey, people used to understand it. They don't anymore. Absolutely. And that's why what Mark said is so true. And until your congregation has an understanding of what is entailed in church membership, 
and then understands itself as a family, and then in, in some cases has to recreate almost ex nihilo an experience of what a healthy, normal family looks like, because there are fewer and fewer of those that are where, where there's actually discipline practiced. They have no idea what they're in for, in, you know, uh, corporately as a, as a congregation. So there's a lot of work that needs to be done there. And then good examples in the congregation, godly, mature people that are doing it right, need to be held up as examples to folks in the congregation because a lot of people just don't have a, a picture of what that looks like even in the home. Yeah, can I just jump in there? Yeah. Obviously, because I think the family is the big one of the big factors in all this because we can teach them from the Bible, we can teach them from the pulpit, but so in, in my ministry where 90% of my congregation don't have both parents or have been abused or confuse discipline with the word abuse and they cannot differentiate between those two words because they have no model and when they come into a saved into my church, it's not the first thing I start with and so you know, we all talk about opening our lives, but we need to open our lives and more, we need to open our homes and model so people come and eat at my table with my family and are in my life and see how do I talk to my children, how do I teach my children, how do I discipline my children, how do I say sorry to my children when I've seen them, and that is, uh, in my context anyway, uh, uh, among the poor in Scotland, is... Um, the starting point for the discussion, if you understand what I mean. And once they see that, it's actually a normal, loving, helpful thing, then uh, some of these barriers come down. So, so I, I like to be able to recount ways in which my wife corrects me, you know, or supplements my love for our kids, or helps me think of something that I was ignoring. You know, I, I don't want to do it anyway. It's going to embarrass her. But, I, you know, they're not going to know those parts of our family life unless I verbalize it. And I can be able to sit there like at a family table. But it's just useful for me as, as a Christian trying to help other Christians grow, and especially as a pastor, to kind of squirrel away. Ah, oh, you didn't text the kids this week. You know, man, it's just a quick little word. It's going to be helpful. I'm busy. I'm thinking about stuff. I'm an idiot. She loves me. She pursues me on this. It's just good for me to recount that. Because even in the recounting of that, then it opens up windows in people's minds. Oh, this is a good thing. I don't want to be defensive. I want to seek this. This is part of healthily living together. I want to move to the definition. I'll make sure we're all using the words in the same way. We understand what we're talking about when we say discipline. Sometimes when I'm reading the prophets, I read Israel, and it's like both the northern and southern kingdom. But sometimes Israel's just a northern kingdom, and I got to, how's Israel being, same with discipline. Mark, you said, in some sense, it's the discipleship or part of the discipleship ministry of the whole church, formative corrective. But then we, we could, people often use it just to refer, say, to the corrective. So interpersonal, moving all the way up to formal. So if I leaned into you privately and, you know, you and I had a little conversation, I correct you. Look, you know, the way you interact with the Green Lantern guy, that just seemed a little harsh or something like that. And privately, and then you repent. Now you're going to tell me I shouldn't sulk. That's right. And then privately, you repented. You went to the Green Lantern guide and said, look, I'm sorry for making fun of youth ministers. And... Did, did he do that with the worship guy too? <laughs> repentance is incomplete, brother. Well, see, now you're, bringing in a, now you're bringing in a two or three. This is between you and Mark. You need to have that conversation. Start with him. 
So that's part of the discipline process, but then we're moving outward and eventually we're moving to excommunication, the exclusion from the church. You're going to walk us through Matthew 18, right? So I'll leave that there. But now when you, you get to that final stage, Mark, disciplining from the church, excommunication, what does that mean? Does that mean you're saying you're not a Christian? Is that what we're saying in that final step of removal? The very final step is the church is saying to that individual, to each other, and to the world, this person is claiming to follow Jesus, but they are giving uh, unbelievable insufficient evidence for that. We can't really affirm that they're following Christ because they seem to love their sin more than the Savior on this point. It it hurts us to say this. We're sorry this is the case. We, We work for and desire and and want their repentance, but we can't say with any degree of confidence that this is what a Christian is. So you're not quite going all the way to saying you're not a believer. You're kind of one step back from that and saying we can't affirm that you're a believer. Yeah, we we don't know the secrets of man's heart. Christians do sin. There's no doubt about that. But uh, God will sovereignly take care of his own. We have to be careful that we are not letting wolves appear to be sheep and feed on other sheep or, or just deceive them by their example. And so, like Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, leaven the whole loaf uh, with sin being tolerated and accepted. So for all kinds of reasons, we need to speak clearly out of love to this person and others. This is not what it means to be a Christian. We can't speak finally about their eternal faith. And the confusion in this is, is Roman Catholicism and the way it used to be before Vatican II where in their understanding that they were committed by God to have the grace of, of God at their disposal through the sacraments, when they would make a decision to cut somebody off from being able to come to the Mass, that they were cutting off something that the person needed in order to be saved, therefore they were affecting their state. So by excommunicating, they were damning them, we're apart from, from their uh, satisfactory penance to the church and being reinstated. So they understood they had a role in someone getting to heaven that we don't understand the local church has. We can damn people, if you were, simply by not evangelizing, by not sharing the gospel. Uh, But other than that, you know, we we can't, we don't have that kind of authority. Would you discipline a non-member, somebody who just attends? I don't think you can. You can tell them, hey, stop doing that. But the church can't take action towards a member who, a person who's not a member of their church. They don't have that jurisdiction, that authority. That would be like what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5. I'm not talking about people of the world. I'm talking about your own number. Would you discipline somebody who says, I don't believe this stuff anymore. I don't think I'm a Christian. No, I, I wouldn't advocate that because there's no longer the hypocrisy involved. I'm very sad. It's not a good thing. But they're, they're not saying they're a follower of Christ. They're not saying that they're they're a Christian. So in a sense, there's, there's no tension there. The problem in 1 Corinthians 5 is not that the guy was adulterous. It's that the guy was being accepted by the church as in fine standing as a Christian while continuing in his adultery. That was the problem. He called himself a brother. Yeah. It, Paul says, look, the people in the world are sexually immoral. Uh, we know that. If you want to try to separate from them, you'll have to go out of the world. So that nobody's surprised by a non-Christian acting like a non-Christian. So the member who comes to you and says, I'd like to resign, I just don't believe you, let him resign. Well, it'd be a lot of pastoral work, but at the very end of it, yes, if the person really no longer believes these things, then we would, we would acknowledge that to the congregation. Even that you would view as a part of the church's exercise of discipline, 
not, not necessarily in sort of a, of a formal excommunication sense, but it's still an act of the church nurturing, correcting, caring for the whole body. Certain all, certainly all of the pastoral work with that person, but at the final stage, where if it were unrepentant sin by a believer, we would take a vote of the church and excommunicate them, now it becomes like reporting a death to the membership. We don't report, we don't vote on it, we simply report what's happened to the congregation and we take it as given. Jonathan, in 1 Corinthians 5, the, it's, it's a silent argument, but I think it's a strong one. The, the discipline is brought against the, the, the man, not the woman. Uh, he's the so-called brother, which seems to indicate that she that was engaged in this incestuous relationship with this act of sexual morality, she was not claiming to be a follower of Christ, and therefore the discipline in 1 Corinthians 5 is not directed toward her. It is directed exclusively to him. Well, if there's a sense in which in excommunication we're withdrawing our affirmation of their profession, if they say they're not a Christian, they've beat us to the punch. They're already saying it on our, we don't need to say it, they're saying it. Now, Mark, you also said, however, in, in your talk, that you would welcome the person to attend the church. Do you guys, do you, would you brothers agree to that, agree with that, that you've excommunicated somebody, you said, you're not welcome to the Lord's table, you're not a member, but we want you to be here. Would you, would you brothers yeah. agree with that? Yeah. Why, why not? I 100% agree with that, because wh where else would you want them to be but under the preaching of the gospel? Because ultimately we want people to be reconciled to God, don't we? That's ultimately what we want them to happen. Even in excommunication, you're still praying that they would come to their senses, that they would be brought to true repentance and faith. And so, um, yeah, I'm, I'm delighted if uh, sometimes if uh, people who've been excommunicated are still attending. In fact, pretty much nearly every single person that I have communicated, I'm not like a super excommunicator or anything, but, um, you know, I, I do my fair share, but uh, <laughs> most of them still t attend on a Sunday, bizarrely, but they want to, so, and I allow them to. The only reason I can think of we wouldn't is if, if there were some kind of uh, abuse or physical or divisiveness. So I can think of exceptional situations sure. in which we would discourage them from attending. But those would be like, you know, one out of 50 cases, one out of 100 cases. Those would not be normal. Well, we had that one situation where an individual was literally beating up members of the church. And there was a restraining order. And that's a circumstance where the state is actually involved because physical harm. Yeah, but hopefully that's typically yeah. exceptional. And, and you, you could have that in, in certain cases of marital disillusion if you, if you had someone that was violently or physically attacking someone else. There may be restraining orders that would uh, predicate a, a disallowance of attendance. One last one on kind of this definitional or how do I understand the boundaries of this? And I think we might get different answers here. If somebody comes to your church from another church who has been disciplined, does the discipline of that other church bind your church? Can you not admit them until the other church removes their discipline? And, and I, here I wonder, Lig, maybe you would have, a, as a Presbyterian, you might have a different answer than some of the congregationalists. Help us think through 
dealing with other churches and their acts of discipline. As a pastor in the Presbyterian Church in America, obviously we have that sort of reciprocal recognition of the discipline of all of the churches in our denomination. And then there are actually reciprocal uh, understandings between the various NAPARC denominations, the North American Presbyterian and Reformed Council, which would be all the Bible-believing, smaller conservative Presbyterian bodies. But the fact of the matter is, I'm going to be concerned about anybody coming from a church that's a Bible-believing church. You know, if, if it, I assure you, if it, somebody comes from Capitol Hill Baptist Church, I'm going to be on the phone to, to Mark or, or somebody asking what's, what's going on. We're, we're concerned about that because of precisely where we were talking about that, that, that tendency of people to just pack up, leave, and go right down the block to another church. It's, it's just not helpful when those things are ignored by other churches that prefer to be, that, that claim to be Bible-believing. And so we're, we'd be very concerned. One of the questions that is asked of everyone applying for membership is, are you a member in good standing of an evangelical church? That's, the, that's the, one of the first questions that's asked in the interview process. And we're after two things there. Are they a baptized member of a local Bible-believing church? And two, are they under discipline or not? We, we want to find both of those things out before we move into the, the, the membership process at our church. And Jonathan, I don't think we ask nearly enough questions on the front end when it comes to the issue of membership. Most churches, especially your large churches, uh, it is too easy to get in and it is too hard to get out. And I cannot, and I, I won't take the lengthy version, but I had a friend several years ago that invited me to come to his church. I was going to do a marriage conference came into the marriage conference. It was 40 and up, which I really enjoyed because I was over 40 then. And they're, they're funny and interesting, and they've been married a while. Well, I walk in, and immediately, I mean, immediately I'm hit. There are a lot of old, fat, wrinkled guys with some really young-looking women on their arm. I, I actually went over and I said, is this a, a marriage conference or a daddy-daughter kind of thing? I mean, what, what's going on here? And he did not bat an eye. He did not bat an eye. He said, well, they're trophy wives. And I said, what? He said, they're trophy wives. And I said, are you serious? And he's kind of getting a little uncomfortable. He said, well, 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 yeah. And I responded, you let them join your church. And he responded, well, how would you prevent it? And I responded, easy. You don't let them. (laughs) And I said, you do interview all the persons who apply for membership, don't you? And he said, well, yes. I said, well, then you ask them. And he said, you can't ask people about their marital status, to which I said, you can ask them whether they wear tidy whities or briefs. If they're going to bring themselves under your watch care, you can ask them any doggone thing you want to. And if they say no, that's fine. You don't have to join my church. Nine Marks does not associate himself with all the (laughs) remarks Dr. Aikens just made. But I mean, that was scandalous to me. And so that's a long answer by way of illustration to your question. Yes, if they're under discipline from another church, you have red flags go up everywhere. And if they're not under discipline, there's some very important questions that you should ask on the front end when people are coming, because you don't want someone in your church that's living in unrepentant adultery that has a brokenhearted wife and shattered lives of their children back over down the street, and they don't give a rip. I'm not sure that person's even a believer. 
Yeah. I certainly don't want them to be a part in my church and moving up in some wolf kind of a way in sheep's clothing into leadership because their life is going to do nothing but wreck other lives. Yeah. Amen, baby. I love that. I like him. <laughs> I like him. We need you in Scotland, little man. We need yeah, I know. Leg and Mark are thinking, if only these two knew each other. Yeah. Do you, Mez, do you, do you ask people when they come to join your church, have you I don't know are what tidy whities are, but they... they... <laughs> do you want to... Ex- Danny, do you want to explain what tidy Sounds interesting. Are? <laughs> do you okay. ask people when they come to join your church, have you ever been disciplined? Yeah, but, so we, let's be clear at this point. Discipline, do you mean they've been excommunicated from yes, the church? Yes, Okay, so... No, no, do, you, under... do you ask that question? Yeah, I mean, I want to know who, you, who are you and what, what do you want here? Um, generally, my two very friendly questions... Um, what do you say? I generally do. What do you want so, what, you, know, you know, why are you here? What do you want? People tend not, are not wanting to tend to come and worship in the schemes in Scotland. We don't attract, you know, many visitors. And so some people, when people come, I want to know, who are you? What are you about? And because we're a small... So, so just to be clear, a scheme is a... Define a scheme. This, a sort of a cross between a project, a trailer park, and uh, an Indian reservation. It's a, it's a government-subsidized... Yeah. Government-subsidized housing in yeah. Scotland. And so, but they're very, they're very narrow, closed communities in the sense of people wouldn't go out to worship, and people certainly wouldn't come in to worship. In our, you know, we don't attract you know, students and trendsetters, guys with tight jeans, tighty whities um, <laughs> And so, but my serious question is, who are you, what do you want? If, and often, if they are so coming the to us, the they, um, I want to know, the serious question is, who, where if, if you're if from some sort of Christian background, who, what's your church? Who's your pastor? There's a, quite a close community in Edinburgh now of pastors, and we're on the lookout for these church-hopping people who just jump about from place to place, and um, I always make it clear, well, I, I, I'm going to ring them, and I'm going to speak to them. And if, you have a, if you're here because of a prior problem in your church, you need to know that I, we will not accept you here um, unless that situation is resolved in a godly manner and your church is happy. Just, just real quickly, yes or no, do you, when people come to join your church, yes or no, do you ask them if they have been excommunicated, disciplined? Certainly yes. Yes. Mez, you yes. ask Yes. Ligon? Yes. Yes. The Beatty? Yes, but for the record, I, I do think we have to stop short of asking whether where tidy whities or breeze. <laughs> well, that's just Danny. Okay, but yes, I, I you I just asked. said you could. I did not say you had to. I want to be clear just on that. to be clear, Mark is I'm, warning I'm about not to. being overzealous. Exactly. And, you know. so. Mark is looking annoyed with this whole conversation. Yes or no, you, you ask if they've been disciplined. Yes, though we've never asked about underwear and would never ask about underwear. Right. And again, just real quick, yes or no. Let's assume if somebody says yes, of course you're going to explore it. I'm going to say, of course, you're going to make calls to the pastor. You're going to get involved. You're going to assess. But yes or no, just just for clarity, would you say that church's act is formally binding on you? Let's say you disagree with their decision. I only get a yes or no? You only get a yes or no. I'm just trying to get a lay of the land here. No, with a lot of footnotes. Okay. Yeah. 
Depends. Depends. <laughs> no. No. It would be, it would depend. It would what? It would depend. Oh, depend. Mark? No. No. Okay. How, one last just across the, 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 the cast of character question. When you got to your present church, how long was it? They weren't practicing discipline before. How long was it till you started taking things to the, to the whole church level? Well, there was, there, was, uh, yeah, there was one case that was within the first two weeks that had begun before I got there. Okay. Um, so we saw that through, and then we have, we have tried to be very patient. Um, and I'd say it's probably a year and a half, creeping on two years. And, but by God's grace, we have not had some kind of severe thing blow up where we've had to do that. So we're working on, on other types of issues like non-attendance and that kind of stuff. And, here, and in your church situation, it was a bit maybe unique because a lot of people joined when you came knowing what you mm-hmm. believe yeah. already about such things. Yeah, that was you really didn't helpful. inherit like a whole crowd of people who disagreed with you. That's true. But there, for those who were there before me, um, there was a very different culture and expectation of what it meant to be a Christian, sure. what church is about, sure. you know, what expectations are. So there was a and those people matter. Like, and just because we could win votes doesn't mean we need to press through. Like, we want to care for those souls and help them think about things well. So there's got to be a patience that everybody is on board with. Yeah. Mez, how long? Um, I'm thinking about four or five years, but we weren't a church. So we had, we had to get us constituted, get elders, uh, statement of faith, and then about year five, I think, engaged in congregational discipline. Four or five years. Yeah. Ligon, were they already practicing when you Yeah, the, 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 the leadership of the elders at my church were, were principally against doing any kind of corrective discipline. Um, so it took about five years before we addressed the first thing that would have counted in terms of negative discipline. We had adopted a full-scale policy and process for doing discipline by the time I left 17 years in the ministry. My predecessor has done more corrective discipline in 18 months than, than we did in 17 years while I was there. So the, the, the groundwork had been laid and the fruits are being born. It took you 17 years to get from here right. to here. Right. So BD, how long when you first went to say Grand Cayman? Uh, we had cases we couldn't avoid within the first year. It wouldn't have been how I would have drawn it up, but um, there were situations that had to be attended to, um, lest we really were disobedient to the scriptures and teaching all the wrong things about what it means to be a Christian and what it means to be a church. Yeah. I'm not the senior pastor, so I don't know how long our church had been in the process of doing church discipline when I joined it. Yeah. Mark? Probably a couple years. A couple years? Okay. Mark, you laid out a number of things to make sure we, we, we do first, teaching humility, making sure people understand membership, and, and a few other things. Brothers, in, in these situations, as you were going through that first four or five years, or first couple of years, or whatever the situation was, what were some of the obstacles you encountered and lessons you learned that would be helpful for the, for the friends here in shepherding your church towards being able to practice? Some obstacles you encountered, lessons you learned from those obstacles. I mean, I had to teach 
just the basics. I mean, The Nine Marks of a Healthy Church is probably one of the first books I ever went through with a group of people that hadn't constituted or thought about what a church is. They hadn't thought about church membership. Most of the people didn't understand what that meant. Um, I mean, I didn't have elders. Um, <laughs> and so a few obstacles. And so it's a, it a much slower process. So there was discipline going on, but at, at the way we function now, which I would say is biblically and congregationally, that took a long time. And you really want to have elders around you because... Um, well, I'm going to talk about this at some point. Um, because I just think, well, one, it's biblical. That's probably the most helpful starting point. Um, and secondly, I think wisdom in the room. You cannot beat godly wisdom in the room and um, people who temper my weaknesses and um, often if you're on your own I can tell you from pure experience on my own in the early years all of these things get or become or feel personal and you have to be so so careful that you're not striking out in vengeance so I can't tell you how many times we've entered an elder conversation I was convinced that we would we should we should go this way but then after the conversation Oh, no, actually, I think we should go that way. Yeah, yeah. You know. A big, big obstacle for us was the culture before kind of this new season at Delray Baptist Church was very programmatic. And what it meant to be active in the church was that you were plugged in and you were doing things and you were involved that way, which is very different than what we do now, which is we want to have a culture of discipling where the normal thing is that we're in each other's lives applying the word. And that's just that is just foreign and it feels intrusive. And then to start saying that, you know, no, actually we, you can't be plugged into something right now because of things that are going on in your personal life to people who were not used to that. It just takes a lot of time and prayer and patience to help them understand this is actually a really good thing. And that the Lord wants something different than you just being active. Like he wants your soul. He wants your devotion. He wants your love. And, and that just takes time. A couple things in terms of encouragements, um, along with taking people to Scripture, um, take people to their organizing documents. If your church has a constitution where some of this is outlined in the constitution, teach the congregation the constitution. It has the advantage of helping them understand that, oh, actually, somebody here was thinking this before the pastor got here. You know, this is not just some idea you're importing. You're kind of helping us to learn how to walk our own land. Uh, so, so use those organizing documents. Be familiar with them insofar as they're consistent with the Scripture. Um, the other thing is I think you, this gets back to your first question about the person who goes to Matthew 7. I think it's really helpful if it's your first case or, you know, people aren't understanding well, to be Socratic in your teaching. Um, so that if you just keep insisting that this is what the Bible says, it feels like a power play to your people. It feels like you're not listening. But if you ask questions and draw them out. And you say, well, tell me what you're thinking about what, how we could love this person. You, you agree this is a sin? Yes. You, you agree that we should try to do something to help them stop? Yeah, well, what would that look like? And to sort of draw them out, and then help them evaluate what they're thinking. Usually, as is the case when you're sitting around a room with a group of elders who've been thinking about this for months, and your people haven't had that privilege, Usually their conversation begins to look like a lot like your elder conversation. Well, this won't work. Well, maybe this has promise or 
we already tried that. And you kind of just sort of shepherd them to the end, uh, which, which we pray looks a lot like the biblical end that your elders have arrived at. So to be, to be more Socratic than just insistent on this is what we must do, this is what the Bible says, which I think oftentimes just feels and sounds like power um, rather than teaching. Now, Thabiti, I heard this story secondhand. Is it true that in Grand Cayman, First Baptist Grand Cayman, you had done such a good job in teaching people about the gospel and membership and discipline that when a situation came up that seemed to require formal exclusion and the elders were a little nervous, at that point the church had been so well taught this is the version I, of the story I got, so I want you to correct. You didn't get that from me, did you? The, 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 the church members were saying, hey, elders, isn't it time to act? Is that? I think when we worked our way through our first case, um, I think it is true that the congregation was readier than the elders had anticipated. Um, and, and so that the response was sort of, it's about time. We knew there was something we should be doing to care for people in this situation. We're so glad you guys are leading us in this way. Yeah. Kudos on teaching that well. Well, no, brother, you, you came there. You did a lot of groundwork before I got there. Uh, I, so I don't know that I can attribute it to I, I taught so well. Um, I think we had some godly people in the congregation who, who knew the sound of their, of their shepherd's voice and wanted to follow him and, uh, and wanted to do it in hard places um, with people that they loved but couldn't rescue. Um, and so there was a readiness there born out of compassion born out of a love for God's Word, born out of a desire to witness well to the truth of Christ that made, made for a kind of readiness so that when they were hearing those things, they were receiving them. And, um, and, and in that way, most of the congregation was easy to be led. Yeah. Just two quick practical notes. Uh, don't try to do church discipline normally without a plurality of elders. It, it is just so hard for you to not fall prey to a battle with somebody who can make it very personal and diminish the whole utility of it. So I think you'll learn that, that a plurality of elders helps so much in being able to be obedient to this. And secondly, even if, you, Jonathan, you forced us to answer yes, no on that formally, who has the authority. But I just want to say practically in our life as a local church, we're extremely respectful of the discipline of other churches. So though we don't understand formally uh, Ligon's church has any authority over our church, and we're not part of the PCA, and we're not even part of NAPARC. Um, we just, if it's a local PCA church or Bible-believing Anglican church, even if they were to ever to do something like this, um, we, we would be and we have been respective of the, respectful of the discipline of other churches, and they are of ours as well. Uh, they're, they're very respectful of us. And so I think as local congregations, you can get together even in ways you're not officially supposed to respect each other. You can respect each other. Uh, you know, if you know that pastor, if they're a godly, Bible-believing pastor, you, you contact them. You work in concert with them for the good of this person. Well, I'm thinking of Second and Third John. One church is speaking to another church. Watch out for these guys. There's, there is that kind of cooperation that we see in the New Testament. Um, I, I so appreciated, Mark, your comment. Your goal is not immediate compliance to your conscience in, in this or that. I don't know if I got the exact phrase right, but it's not immediate compliance to what your conscience is telling you, especially with this individual right now, but it's, it's to shepherd the whole church 
and making sure they're ready. So even if I'm trying to get all my you know, formulas right with this guy right now, I could actually be neglecting a, my larger charge to help prepare all of them for this. And that's where I think each of you brothers have been such an excellent example, and I hope one of the main things we would, we would take, a, take away from this. Any last comments from Mark's talk or definition, preparation? Mark, your comment on 1 Timothy 5 I thought was so good about those who are called to be elders and pastors expecting to be criticized, and especially in this area. If, you, if, if you're going to be faithful in church discipline, people that you love are going to criticize you. And you, you have got to, you've got to be ready for that and, and just say, I'm, I'm going to be faithful and I'm going to expect to be criticized. I thought that was a very important point.